Wave conditions are associated with high winds, both on the ground and in the air. And uh, Bob landed on the top of the local hospital parking ramp. I think it's a good thing that his parachute snagged on the light pole. It uh, kept him off the ground and, you know, kind of embarrassing. He needed help to get down, but it also meant that the wind did not blow him off the top of the parking ramp. Welcome to Soaring the Sky, a Glider Pilots podcast. My name is Chuck. I'm your host, coming to you from the Mid-Atlantic region here in the United States and flying with the Cumberland Soaring Group. This is episode 87. If you haven't already, please go ahead and hit that subscribe button. And if you really want to help grow the podcast, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. A big thank you to our newest Patreon pilot to join us. That is Bernie LaRitchie. Thank you so much for contributing to the podcast. Greatly appreciated. Also, a big thank you to all of our Patreon pilots who continue to support the podcast. If you want to support us financially, you can do that by going to patreon.com slash soaring the sky. We do have some benefits for those of you that do that. Just one of the benefits of being a Patreon pilot is getting sneak peeks of upcoming guests and content we will be featuring on the show. You hear about it before anyone else does. If you don't want to use Patreon, but you still want to help the show out, you can do that by going on our website and hitting the Support the Show button, where you will see some other options there. While you are on our website, please don't forget to sign up for our brand new newsletter. This episode is sponsored by the Southern California Soaring Academy, a 501c3 nonprofit organization located in the high desert of Los Angeles, California. Soaring Academy is dedicated to growing the sport of soaring with young people through its 8th grade STEM outreach programs and giving back to PTSD-afflicted veterans during private monthly events. Flight lessons and mountain soaring are available year-round to the general public, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. To learn how you can get involved, check them out on Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook at Soaring Academy or online at SoCalSoaringAcademy.org. Dr. Dan Johnson is retired AME and internist living on the west coast of Wisconsin, close to the airport from which he flies sailplanes and airplanes. He has flown airplanes since his father bought a Cessna 150 with observer doors in 1962 and has flown gliders since 1986. He's been speaking and writing on aviation physiology for 30 years and is also the medical advisor for the Perlin Project. Today he will share with us his journey as well as chatting with us about his most recent article in the February issue of Soaring Magazine titled Secret Whirlwinds. Also on the podcast, Dale Masters joins us again, author and glider pilot, bringing us another soaring tale with Dale, and this one is titled OMG. For our tips and techniques segment, we will hear from Kempton Izuno, who's been flying gliders for over 45 years. Jim Zimbakis will join us from sunny Florida for our soaring safety segment. All of this now and more right here on episode 87 of Soaring the Sky. Dan Johnson, welcome to Soaring the Sky. Happy to have you here today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, first of all, I, I, I want to thank you for that really interesting article you wrote in the latest issue of, of course, the SSA Soaring Magazine. But before we get into all that, I always like to have the guest pilot, you know, briefly introduce themselves to the community and talk for a few minutes about how they got started in their aviation journey. So how did all that start for you? Well, I read uh, Charles Lindbergh's books as a young child, 
we and alone. We had in the mid-50s a group of elderly gentlemen in their 30s who decided that the our t- local town should have its own airport. Uh, two of them had spent the World War II building airstrips in South Pacific as Seabees, so they knew how it was done. It did not take the, the folks long to create an airport and build some hangars and have some airplanes. And uh, my father, the town physician, strongly encouraged the businessmen to do this as a good way to relax. And after half a dozen of them had done this, they came back to him and said, Doc, why aren't you taking your own advice? So my father bought a Cessna 150 with observer doors and we had ground school in our living room. And uh, when I was 15 years old, he let me start taking a few lessons, not very many, but flying is wonderful. It's always been wonderful. And I flew a little bit until about 1990. Uh, I was a senior aviation medical examiner, an internist. This old guy came in my office. He was tall and gaunt and shambling. He looked like death warmed over. And he said, Doc, all my life I've wanted to fly, but I never had the time. But now I've retired. And so I bought an airplane and I started taking lessons. And now I'm here for my flight physical. And I had two thoughts. My first thought was, man, you got it ass backwards. The way you look, you should have come for your physical first. And the second was, this could be me. I've only got 140 hours in 30 years of flying. What am I doing? And so the bottom line is he never did solo, but never sold the airplane. He just didn't have the right stuff. He he lived a long time. He looked ashen because he was a smoker, as as they do. And I started flying. I Right now I have about 3,000 hours, about 1,000 in gliders, and about 1,000 in high-performance aircraft. And I've enjoyed it. It's uh, it's it's fascinating intellectually. It's it's not just being up and looking down at the earth from God's point of view. It's very complex. The weather's complex. The rules are complex. Aircraft are complex. It's just so much fun to try to wrap your mind around all that. So, what attracted you to gliders? I don't remember. Um, I think just the idea of being in thermals and soaring without an engine. I first tried doing this in the mid-1980s and just really didn't do very well with it. In the 90s, I was able to get my private pilot add-on. And then I I did a part-time job, and it turned out the money I earned in that job was just about exactly what I needed to buy an old Blanick L-13. And then as pilots came through my office, I invited them to join a club. About a half a dozen dozen of us formed a club around this old Blanick L-13, and we did auto ground launching, a little bit of aerotos, and I got half a dozen pilots to their commercial glider certificates. And then as life happens, they kind of all moved out of town. And at the same time, I had the opportunity to buy a self-launching Ventus CM sailplane. And so with deep regret, I sold the two-seater. And uh, because it's it's antisocial, you know, to, to have a one-seat glider, you can't give anybody rides. But uh, it's been quite an experience. Uh, I've learned a lot. When I bought it, a guy out east said, I said, what kind of a job do you have? He said, I said, I'm a doctor. He said, well, that's too bad. Well, I know what he meant because doctors work really long hours and it's a demanding job. But my house is one mile from the airport and one mile from my clinic. And so instead of spending time commuting, I can spend time flying. 
works out well, the, the glories of a small town. But since I've retired, I've flown about twice as much as I used to. I put in 93 hours last year. Oh, nice. Um, and that was mainly weather limited. You can only do so much in the upper Midwest. I didn't, couldn't fly until the end of April. Uh, but it's just fascinating. You know, why why do why do thermals form? How can you find them? Where's the next thermal? What it, what has What is happening in the boundary layer to allow you to stay aloft? It's uh, enormously interesting. And I've... I've always enjoyed teaching. Uh, so 30 years ago, I started giving talks to pilots about pilot physiology, you know, what you could know about your body that would help you fly your airplane better. You know, most guys who like flying uh, know everything about their aircraft. And, and you know, you know how you've met people that know every engine model in every aircraft that was ever built. Um, but you know that what really causes the accidents is the soft, squishy thing behind the control column. Simply understanding uh, physiology and illusions and how our body works can make pilots much safer. I give talks regularly, and then about uh, 10 years ago, the editor of Soaring Magazine asked me to start writing a column. I did that for five years until I ran out of gas, but I love doing term papers. And so this article on secret whirlwinds, related my own experience with invisible turbulence and the damage it can do and some research on why it happens and some some other problems people have had. As you know, the main problem with the air is that it's invisible. We cannot see what's really happening and we create this false impression of the air based on our experiences. So if the, if the aircraft suddenly goes down, we think we're in a downdraft. And if the aircraft suddenly goes up, we think we're in an updraft. That may not be true. It may be a new headwind or a new tailwind instead. In addition, on lively days, soaring is really best when the atmosphere is unstable. Almost all turbulence involves swirling uh, air so that the part of the swirl goes in the good direction and part of it goes in the bad direction. And so all aircraft, especially near the ground, are prone to sudden changes of bank or airspeed related to this turbulence. Um, and so we have to be very careful uh, not to allow this to get either wing below the stall speed of that wing. Thank you, Dan. And before we get into this interview a little more, in the interest in getting to know you a little bit, uh, we started, actually this is the first time, so lucky you, new segment <laughs> called Soaring the Sky Lightning Route. Okay, so it's like 20 some questions, rapid fire. You can only choose from the options. So you can say pass or you can choose one of the options. So what do you think? <laughs> sure, let's try it. Okay, so here we go. If you're looking for good lift, would you rather follow a vulture, a hawk, a condor, an eagle, or a goose? An eagle. I have eagles around here and they mark thermals quite nicely. Okay, Ventus 3 or ASG 29? No opinion. Pawnee or Piper Super Cub? Either one is fine. As long as the engine runs, it's good. <laughs> right. Sky Sight or XC Skies? I use Sky Sight a lot. I, I need to get better acquainted with XC Skies, uh, but um, I, I use, I use uh, Sky Sight. Flaps or no flaps? Oh, flaps. Thermals or ridge? I've flown very little ridge. I'm good at thermals. Of course, I prefer what I'm used to. Fly cross-country or stay close to home? Oh, cross-country, all the time. Even when I'm close to home, I, I invent a little cross-country, even if I can only go five kilometers. 
Bucket hat, baseball cap, bandana, or none of the above? Bucket hat, always. If you have a baseball cap, you got to make sure it doesn't have a little button on the top because when you hit the turbulence in your baseball cap, you may either injure your scalp or you may injure your canopy. Yeah, exactly. Water bottle or camelback? I've used both. Uh, I really like the camelback behind the seat with the tube coming around. Um, having said that, uh, I, I often just bring a water bottle. Pure glider or motor glider? Well, I own a self-launching sailplane. Uh, it's all different. Um, a touring motor glider can be very interesting. And I've flown some of those, uh, particularly the Pipistrel Cenus. Um, and uh, they're just different. I think they're all wonderful. 15 meter or 18 meter? It's just a different. I love the long wings because you generally can penetrate better. So I, since I like doing cross countries, I, I'm grateful for the good glide ratio that 18 meters gives me. Metal gliders or wooden gliders? Metal. Wheel brake on air brake, lever, or on the stick? I've used both. I like having them separate. My wheel brake is on the stick currently, and uh, it works fine. Now, you just have to know where the brake is and how to use it. In general, the wheel brake on the stick, in my experience, has been a more effective brake. Vario sound on or off in sync? I leave Vario sound on. Polarized sunglasses or non-polarized? The only drawback to polarized is that you can't see your cockpit LCD screen quite as well. But polarized are great for cutting glare off water and things like that. I use polarized. Spoilers on turn to final, open or closed? Closed. Parachute for pattern flights, yes or no? No. Really, it depends on the traffic. I have an airport where there's almost no traffic, so the risk of a collision is extremely low. And the parachute's quite uncomfortable, so I generally use a wonderful cushion. So on a land out, who do you call? Spouse or your gliding buddies? Gliding buddies. When about the Ventus, I asked my wife about retrieving me, and she said, you have an engine. <laughs> You smoke the tires on landing, okay? Do you fess up to your mistake or the brake was stuck? Well, I haven't done that. Having said that, uh, some years ago, they did a seal coat at our airport with pumice in the covering, and it just chewed up my tire because, you know, the tire starts out at rest. It's not turning, and so it has to be accelerated by touching this stuff, and uh, I've kept the tire. It has just one season with only about 20 landings. It has no tread. You fess up. P-tube or P-bag or diaper? You know, a diaper's convenient. I use diapers. When at a gas station and you're asked by a bystander what's in the trailer, do you mess with them and have fun with it? I do not. I tell them it's a glider. Beer, wine, whiskey, or water? Beer, wine, whiskey, or water? Water. Steak, lobster, or a big salad? Salad. All right, thank you, Dan. That was fun. And again, listeners out there, feel free to drop your ideas. Either email me or you can DM me on Instagram. We love to get the community's input on this, this new kind of fun segment we're starting. So we definitely look forward to hearing your input. And now a word about our recently added new sponsor, Just Soaring. These guys are doing an all-new glider simulator cockpit for you Condor pilots out there that I think you're really going to be excited about. 
This sim rig was designed from the ground up with glider flight controls like flaps that have multi-position detents, a spring-loaded spoiler mechanism, landing gear lever, and flight controls laid out where you expect them to be in your cockpit. Built with super strong 8020 T-slot aluminum, which will not only hold up well, but will also allow for accessorization and customization over time. Designed by Glider Pilots for Glider Pilots, their mission is to design, engineer, and globally distribute a truly best-in-class, very affordable performance glider sim cockpit. They plan to start taking pre-orders sometime in the next couple months, and they are looking at first shipments to be in spring of 2021. And yes, while they are a U.S. company, they plan to have warehousing in Europe to support that market as well. If you are thinking about upgrading your Condor cockpit, you might want to check these guys out first at JustSoaring.com or at Just.Soaring on Instagram. You can reach out to them via their website with any questions. And thanks again to Just Soaring for supporting the show. If you'd like to be a sponsor or know someone that might, please drop us a line. So what weather products do you typically look at and how do you incorporate them in your flying? Do you just commit to memory? Do you have a general idea for the day? Yeah, I, I depend on memory. I would like to have a really bright screen in the cockpit on which I could... Um, uh, download the current satellite picture so that I can see if there are markers in the direction I want to go. That's useful knowledge. But otherwise, I don't have a particular need. I don't have any ridge. I don't do wave here. SkySight it predicts wave quite accurately. If I were doing wave soaring, I would equip my computer in the cockpit with the SkySight prediction model. Some of the guys who do wave soaring actually do that. They'll Usually it's an LX9000, they put SkySight on it. Dennis Tito is the guy who funded that development. And uh, I'm told that uh, some of these guys simply fly the SkySight model and hardly bother to look for clouds. Having said that, I think it's good to use a multiplicity of tools. Um, I need to explore XC Skies. They've done a lot of development since I last checked into it. Also, they have the German weather model available. I'd like to see how that, that is for predicting markers and lift. Um, I've used Top Meteo. Uh, there are some features that I really like, such as the vertical uh, tabular numerical cross-section of local sky. I also like the fact that in showing their map of lift, they show the expected top of lift in uh, thousands and tenths, uh, as well as color. I find the color extremely uninformative, generally speaking. I find numbers much more informative. Uh, I really like the SkySight uh, ability to forecast uh, pace around a triangle. Having said that, uh, forecasts are always wrong. You cannot, for example, use SkySight to, to plan your triangle and expect to have it exactly as predicted. It just never works. I uh, use... Uh, uh, Dr. Jack Glendening's blip maps. Uh, I've used those ever since the beginning. I helped. I contributed to that effort years ago. Uh, he's got one map labeled experimental that in my area is the most uh, accurate predictor of markers and clouds. And so I always check that. Um, I also use the, the National Weather Service that especially the, the surface map uh, forecasts in the long-range forecasts, I'm, I'm now using Windy. I've been using the, the National Weather Service, 
the most important thing about the long range forecast is that there always is weather. The, the long range forecast is never accurate, but it gives you an idea of, of where in the world the fronts are located, where they're trending. As a general rule, if it's going to be if the if rain is predicted for Thursday, I'm probably not going to be able to soar. So the first thing I do is look for rain, and forecasts of rain, uh, as instance as as times when I should not be uh, heading out to fly or plan other activities. In the Upper Midwest, uh, it, soaring is generally best behind a cold front. So trying to pick the days which will be the, a day or two or three after cold front passage will be excellent soaring. Warm front conditions are always almost always terrible soaring. So if the wind is out of the south, again, there's no point in going to the airport with rare exceptions. The presence of markers is useful. It, the, far, the closer you get to the Rockies, uh, the more likely you are to have severe clear with, with no markers. It takes an entirely different mindset to soar on blue days than it does on days with markers. It's a, a real mental shift. Without markers, you really have to understand what the winds aloft are doing, what the winds at the surface are doing, and understand thermal sources on the ground, uh, both in terms of the, of the terrain color and terrain slope. Uh, the worst place to be is on a over beautiful sunlit field that happens to be uh, downsloping away from the wind. That's a land out. With markers, the higher they are, the more you can ignore the terrain features. And uh, if you you know if you've been flying along with uh, seven thousand foot bases, and your triangle takes you into into the blue, you suddenly have to shift your whole attention from what's going on in the sky to what's going on on the ground. And that takes a few minutes to do. What's the sketchiest thing you've ever seen experienced while maybe on tow or on the winch launch? Or if not for you personally, what's the scariest thing maybe you witnessed or even heard about a glider launch? And what safety takeaways could we learn from that? Well, I think it's the same as with all errors. We call them accidents because they were not part of the day's plan. They occur primarily because of unexpected things or lapses in attention. And so having a mental and written checklist is very important. The checklist need not, in my experience, be, be verbal. It can be spatial. For example, going around in, a, in 360 degrees and making sure everything that you, that you can account for in your in your cockpit in a 360-degree circle is taken care of. Some of the incidents I remember clearly, we were uh, auto-tail launching a Lark some years ago, and our instructor pilot took off with the tail dolly attached. Um, this is not a time to panic. It flies just fine. Um, but I radioed to him that he should keep his speed up because of the tail dolly. We didn't want to have the tail drag down. And he did. He landed fast, and he said the, the din from the uh, tail the wheel oscillating back and forth was deafening, uh, but it was a safe incident. Um, there was an accident about a decade ago in which a grandpa was giving grandchild a ride in a lark and launched with the tail dolly in place. And the spectators panicked and yelled at him to abort. And he did, and he crashed, and both he and his grandchild were killed. And I'm confident it was the panic of the spectators 
that cu causing him to cut loose from toe at a low altitude, not knowing what the problem was. Uh, whereas if he had just continued, the, the glider would have flown just fine and they could have talked about it and they would have survived. I know in the pre-interview, we had briefly talked about someone you knew that actually lost a wing flying into an overdeveloped cloud in Nevada. Could you maybe tell me about that? I've had some new information about that since we spoke as well. Bob Spielman was a wonderful glider pilot in Nevada, flew out of Air Sailing and out of Minden near Reno. He was an old fighter pilot. He did not have a glider that was equipped for instrument flight, however, nor did he have experience in partial panel. He had an accident in which he entered cloud over Reno in wave. He told me that the cloud developed around him, uh, be that as it may, one of his colleagues clarified to me that he actually was trying to transition above cloud from one part of the wave to another, and the sink was greater than anticipated, and he ended up descending into cloud. After he did that, he said that he, he quickly became disoriented and heard a loud bang and noticed that a, one wing had departed his glider, so he decided to exit the glider. Wave conditions are associated with high winds, both on the ground and in the air. And uh, Bob landed on the top of the local hospital parking ramp. I think it's a good thing that his parachute snagged on the light pole. It uh, kept him off the ground and, you know, kind of embarrassing. He needed help to get down, but it also meant that the wind did not blow him off the top of the parking ramp. As I recall, the glider's carcass landed in a vacant part of that same ramp and the, and the wing landed about a mile to a half a mile away. There are a lot of lessons about getting trapped in cloud, but one of the lessons is you're often better off to let go of everything and, and pull the spoilers open than you are to try to get control of the glider. What's the most interesting or memorable landout you've had? Well, I've only had one, uh, one real landout. I almost made one in my self-launching sailplane because the engine refused to start and on short final to a bean field, I discovered I was pushing the microphone button instead of the starter button. Um, but years before, I was out at air sailing in a cross-country camp, and I was talked into going from air sailing to Stead. It's, uh, you know, 15 miles or so. On the way back, I got on the wrong side of Fred's Mountain and couldn't find lift, so I landed on a dirt road. It, I think it's good to make a land out. In retrospect, the road was could have been a little wider. The distance between the sagebrush on the on the sides of the road is about a foot wider than the glider's wingspan, and uh, so if I if I touched a wingtip into that sagebrush, I would have done a ground loop on the road and possibly done some damage. And the interesting part is, there you are in the desert. It's a warm day, very dry. Fortunately, you brought some water, uh, the, and you wait and wait and wait and wait. The tow plane comes, sniffs around, decides it's not safe to tow you out. A correct decision. So you wait and wait and wait some more, and then eventually the trailer comes with the sledgehammer, the swipe your disassembly tool, and they inform you that uh, <laughs> they spent an hour trying to find the right road. Oh, uh, that's good. But the most important thing about that land, most interesting thing to me about the land out was that when we when we got back with the glider on the trailer to the cross country camp the pilots quickly started mocking me. Oh, you're going to have to put that together tomorrow. You won't be able to fly tomorrow. Ha, 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 ha. And the next morning I discovered that glider pilots consist of, of two different types of people. One are the engineers. And uh, they were pushing each other 
sort of metaphorically to get a turn to put in a bolt or a cotter key or something. I had to do only a little bit of the assembly work there. It must have been six or eight guys who all wanted to know how a, how a 126 went together and have a part in putting it together. Meanwhile, it was a cold, rainy day. So the guys that wanted to go flying were sitting in a cold hangar drinking coffee, trying to stay warm and not having a bit of fun. Um, frankly, I prefer <laughs> the engineers. <laughs> Can you tell me about the glider port you flew out of most often? Oh, I fly out of home. Um, when I bought myself launching sailplane, uh, I suddenly didn't need tow or crew. And uh, because I'm a, I'm a doctor, I had really limited time to go flying. So whenever the weather was horrible and I had a, a few hours, uh, I would fly locally. Uh, I would get, you know, 30 or 40 hours a year, uh, quite a lot considering. Uh, but it's always local. I have very little experience outside anymore outside of my, my hometown. I can tell a great deal about soaring in northern Wisconsin. How is the soaring in northern Wisconsin? It's uh, often very dodgy. <laughs> um, we we have a problem with terrain. There are big areas of forest. Uh, forests don't uh, have a lot of good thermal sources in them, except for clear-cut areas if you can find them, and there, frankly, are no good land-out spots. You, you, know, you have your choice of clear-cut stuff or, or trees or marshes. Uh, or small lakes, just not the sort of thing most glider pilots want to retrieve from or land in. Uh, we have a lot of lakes. Uh, lakes quench thermals. Uh, my experience is that a lake bigger than about a mile and a half across is going to have dead air on the downwind side. Uh, I discovered that first by flying to the downwind side of a five-mile diameter lake and spending a half hour trying to get out of that hole. A bigger lake, you just don't want to be anywhere near down the downwind. We have a big lake in eastern Minnesota, Malax Lake. It's about 10 by 15 miles. And uh, I've seen wind shadow uh, blue holes downwind of that lake 50, 60 miles long. Uh, river valleys are similar. Um, so <clears throat> the land of 10,000 lakes uh, is a land of, uh, you know, half a dozen thermals. Uh, you want to go toward the flat prairie area with lots of farms. The other thing about Wisconsin is the unglaciated area in southeast Wisconsin is, is full of rolling hills. And unlike out west, the hills are all covered with trees. So you have a valley with farm fields in it and trees on the side. And uh, finding thermals can be very challenging in that wrinkled tree-covered terrain. Uh, so it's, it's, it's not a slam dunk to, to fly around here. But I have learned that, it, that farm fields are your friend. As far as other glider ports go, do you have any locations on your bucket list that you'd like to soar sometime? If you do, why? You know, I don't have a bucket list. And the reason is that um, I just love being in the sky and I'm not, I'm less of a tourist. Uh, I've been to air sailing in Nevada. That's a, a lovely place. Uh, I find mountains a little bit scary because of the land out concerns. I don't have a particular need to, to soar where it's really humid because the thermals are, are not very tall and, and it's it's just really hard work on a hot, moist day to do anything. I like I like the north. Uh, and I think I think uh, the plains of Canada would be a great place, especially uh, you know Edmonton and Calgary uh, flying on the flat ground or flying over the mountains. It just seems the air is generally quite unstable to the north and I think the soaring conditions are very good up there. One of the goals on the show here is to, of course, help grow the sport of soaring around the world. What are some things that you've seen people that you've met in the last few years 
that are helping to work in this direction? Any suggestions for the community, things we could do better? Well, I started and discontinued two soaring clubs over the years. And I have to say that, that a club is dependent on people willing to spend their time keeping it organized, uh, maintaining the enthusiasm of the others. It's impossible to underestimate the importance of the sacrifices people make to keep a club or a soaring business running. It takes real devotion and it subtracts from their time in the air. I think we need to recognize that and appreciate it. Um, having said that, there are some just some wonderful, wonderful people that, that do this work and keep clubs going. And that I think that needs uh, a great deal of encouragement. I always let people give a shout out if they want to give a shout out to anyone that's been influential in their soaring. Yeah, I know you've done a lot of soaring and you've met a lot of people and flown with a lot of people, but is there anyone you want to give a shout out to? Well, I have to say I greatly appreciate Bob Wander. Um, he gave me some of my early lessons. He's a magnificent instructor, and he also demonstrated a cross-control stall spin for me in a Blahnik L23, which was one of the most spectacular flying experiences I had had. I've had. It didn't quite flip over on his back, but it was a good lesson uh, on why not to do that. Uh, Bob's a great guy too. He uh, is the series of soar books that he's put out over the years. Uh, his support of the soaring society and, and instruction in general, I think, uh, is just admirable. I really, I really admire him. Well, thank you, Dan. I appreciate you spending some time with us on the podcast here today. It's been nice to hear your story. You're welcome. I should stick in one more point, um, and that is related to my article on whirlwinds. I am convinced that it's very important to abandon the stall landing when the air is live and turbulent. The problem is that we get we have to get slow we get, before we get to the point of stall. In that slow period, it doesn't matter whether you're three feet off the ground or 30 feet off the ground, the invisible turbulence can drop you in and you as the pilot will take the blame. Uh, whereas staying well above stall speed, um, at least 10 knots, maybe 15, and coming onto a wheel landing and then putting out spoiler and retracting flaps or whatever it takes to stick on the ground is important. If, it, if the air is calm and you've just had a sled ride, a beautiful stall landing is perfectly safe and effective, but if, if the air is lively, either due to strong surface winds or lots of lots of thermal turbulence, I think it's important an important safety item to make a high-speed wheel landing and use the runway you've got. Thank you, Dan. You're welcome, Chuck. It's a pleasure. Looking forward to speaking with you again here on the podcast. Okay. Thank you, sir. Author and glider pilot Dale Masters now brings us another soaring tale with Dale. This one's titled, OMG. So anybody who's given a lot of glider rides could tell stories of this really just in, inane questions some people ask because they just don't know any better. I mean, ordinary people who have good common sense say things like, well, do we get a pilot? And... Other people are offended when a pilot wants to go with them. They think they should just get to take the plane and go. This stuff happens. Other people have asked, well, is the tow plane a glider too? And I've heard people say, well, how do you get down without the tow plane? And it's not much fun trying to explain that to somebody who's really intelligent, but making a really, you know, asking a really, really stupid question. So 
I was up on a half-hour flight with this, uh, well, I won't say what gender or anything about the person. I don't want to offend any demographic, but it was a reasonably intelligent adult. And I'm up with that person. We've flown around in the mountains for an hour or half hour. So, you know, we've pointed every direction several times and had a good time. And we're back toward the airport. We're in the landing pattern. They're happy to be getting down. And as we turn final approach, they screech. Oh, my God, the tow plane's gone. When they saw the the airport, the runway, uh, roll out in front of us, they finally realized we've not been towed this whole time. So now we're on final approach, and this person's panicking, freaking out, thinking we're going to die because we don't have a tow plane to get us down. So obviously I got us down okay, but it was it was kind of hard to make a good landing when I was stifling laughter and trying to explain it at the same time. And the show is proud to announce yet another new sponsor. Wings and Wheels has been serving the soaring and sport aviation community for more than 30 years now. They have the largest and most comprehensive inventory of sailplanes and soaring supplies in the U.S. Nearly everything you'll find on their site is in stock and ready for same-day shipping. They are proud to be the exclusive American representative for HPH LTD, manufacturer of the finest quality sailplanes. The HPH Twin Shark is the newest 20-meter two-place sailplane on the market and arriving in North America this spring. Their staff has thousands of hours of flying experience in gliders and airplanes. Staffed by Adam, Kelly, Julie, and Sean. A friendly voice will answer when you call. Located in Eagle, Idaho, Wings and Wheels has a new commercial building with warehouse built to their specifications and completed in 2021. Whether shipping domestic or international, your soaring-related supply list is covered. Come visit them next time you are in the Boise area. Check them out at wingsandwheels.com. And through the end of May, if you use the promo code POD2021, you'll get a free 8-inch sailplane decal with your order. We're stoked to have them on board the pod and thank them for their support. And now for our tips and techniques segment, we hear from Kempton Izuno. He's been flying gliders for over 45 years. After a few years of flying mostly thermal cross countries, I noticed you know there were there would be some days where the wave would set up because the Mendocinos are a relatively straight north-south ridge that you could uh, the wave would set up where you could kind of run that the lee side of it in a southwest wind uh, situation. And we also have a north wind wave, which is after the front goes through. Because it's from the north, it tends to only work off of certain peaks. But with a modern glider, modern meaning 18 meter or better, you know, you can have you can push into the wind pretty much like a 50 knot wind and go upwind from certain places. So anyway, combining all this, in 2013, I gave a presentation talking about the wave possibilities for cross-country at Williams and said, you know, I, I think it's possible we can be looking at doing 1,000-kilometer uh, flights out of here, you know, given that wave is a pretty uh, stationary lift, right? It might vary a little bit because, you know, obviously the more wind, it's a longer wavelength and less wind, it's less of a wavelength. But we can map this out every season and then start going places, and almost all the cross-country wave you hear about is all crosswind, you know, running up and down the Sierras. Uh, 
the only point-to-point flights I've ever heard about was Cecil Craig's flights back in the 60s when he would try to fly from Seattle. He was trying to fly down to um, California. And so he would go off the major peaks, Hood and and Rainier uh, and so forth. So long story short, we started doing this and I encouraged other pilots to do it. And I would put out forecasts and whatnot. And so we got up. In fact, James Alagio uh, was, uh, I flew with him like three years ago and we got our furthest from Williams up to almost uh, to about 30 miles northeast of Eureka. So that's like 170 miles away from Williams, you know, just following the different wave patterns in a prefrontal wave. And so that became, I don't know, we did like four or 500 miles that day, three, four hundred miles. So that was, it's fantastic. I love wave because it's, it's quiet and it's, it's relatively nonviolent as thermal is going to be. And it's, it's just different. You're up high. I tend to overheat easily. So I, I like cool air. Uh, but the other part of it is when you have a, a point-to-point flight, like in our north wind days, so it's it's a dry north wind, there's no clouds, and so, but we have known points which have a uh, wave, uh, this one called Goat Mountain, directly west of the airport, Mount St. Helena is another one uh, in the Calistoga uh, Napa Valley area. And over the years, and this dates back to the 60s, people know that there are certain waves, Mount Diablo, Fremont, other places. So the short story of it is, along with Rami and a couple other people, we've expanded that out. And about four years ago, I was able to fly from Williams down the Napa Valley to Mount Diablo, cross over the San Francisco Bay at 18,000 feet, over downtown San Francisco, and then make it back upwind 100 miles into a 50-knot wind uh, using these points and got back to Williams. So the key thing here, I guess, is exposes a larger, my, my larger interest. I, I want to do interesting flights. They're not necessarily record flights, but they're interesting flights. But to be able to pinpoint this lift, and then when that same weather setup comes again, you say, yep, there's one near Kenwood, there's one near Petaluma right here, I marked it, and sure enough, years later, I go back to that same spot in the same weather, and it's it's there. So we could just drive around the sky, and I just find it interesting that I don't, I haven't heard anyone else doing this. I'm sure people are doing it, but I figure I have to write an article about this because, you know, people, I think Bill Hill might do it in New Mexico, and there are places you could probably do it on the East Coast along the Appalachians, but it's amazing, right? I mean, this is an amazing sport. And then to be able to take and do that and map out these points, it's it's magic. And you can hear our entire chat with Kempton Zuno. That's on episode 75 here on the podcast. This soaring safety segment is brought to you by Aerox Aviation Oxygen Systems. Aerox, number one in portable and engineered oxygen systems your source for FAA-approved oxygen mask and portable oxygen systems. Aerox now introduces the Aerox Pro 2 Plus Flight Bag Portable Oxygen System. Small, lightweight, and simple to use. The Pro 2 Plus is perfect for the occasional user who wants the flexibility to access higher altitudes without worry about flying impaired. Now available at Aerox Distributors and at Aerox.com. Aerox engineered for aviators. I think a lot of times when uh, 
people get in trouble, they, they know they're getting into a, a bad situation. Um, maybe you're flying around your home field and, and you see that you're, you're getting a little low, but for example, you know, my example of, I, I thought I would just find some lift, uh, out ahead. And I, I went ahead and turned for home, even though I knew that I didn't have, uh, the altitude I needed. There was a voice in my head telling me, don't do that. Uh, I was only 10 miles to another, to my landing point. Uh, I'm sorry, to the previous turn point where I could have landed at a, at a paved runway. Somebody could have flown out there and got me. But I didn't listen to that little voice in my head that said, you know, hey, stop where you are. You know, worst case, land land out at this airport and, and you know, be ready for the next day. Uh, I didn't listen to that voice. So the advice I would give is l- listen to your conscious. It, it's telling you a lot of times uh, if you think it's not a good decision, it's probably not a good decision. And, uh, you know, always remember it's it's a, it's a sport. Uh, it's not there to be, doesn't have to be, uh, any more dangerous than it is and, and try and enjoy it and, and just be absolutely as safe as you can be. Uh, one of, one of the members that are club and it, it still stands out in my mind, um, that concept of, I'm, I'm just gonna, I'm going to skip this cloud. There was no lift here. So I'm going to go to the next cloud. There'll be some lift under that one or, you know, this next area. And he said it, he goes, Hey, sometimes tomorrow never comes. You, you keep you keep skipping those clouds and pretty soon there's, there's no more clouds left and, and you can't get, you know, any higher and you have to land. So sometimes, you know, sometimes tomorrow never comes. You just gotta, you gotta stop and be, uh, be thoughtful, you know, take, take what you have and try and work, uh, work with the conditions that you're in and, and always be safe. Don't, it's, it's a sport. Don't, don't try and do something that's going to endanger you or even the people on the ground uh, around you. Make it, make it as fun and enjoyable as possible. You can hear our entire chat with Jim on episode 29 here on Soaring the Sky. Thank you for joining us today. If you want to follow us on social media, please do that. We are on Instagram and Facebook at Soaring the Sky Podcast. If you want to hear more soaring adventures and you can't wait to our next episode, well, you can check them all out at SoaringTheSky.com. And while you're there, of course, you can sign up for our brand new newsletter. Until next time, stay healthy, stay safe, and happy soaring. If you would like to say hi and let us know where you are enjoying the podcast, we would love to hear from you. If you are a glider pilot and want to share your aviation journey, contact us at chuck at soaringthesky.com or send us a message on our website at soaringthesky.com and Chuck will get in touch with you. We hope you join us next time for another soaring adventure here on Soaring the Sky, a glider pilot's podcast. Soaring the Sky is written and produced by Chuck Fulton, co-producer Mitch Thompson. Original music for the podcast was written and produced by Kim Spangler. Graphic design for the podcast was created by Zachary Fulton. Voiceover work was done by Michelle Perez.